0: I knew that the way that I was going to center the point of view and the perspective was going to be from a place of care and intentionality and love. And that's all I can do.
1: Hello. And welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Director's Guild of America. In this episode, a grieving mother uses her pain to open the eyes of the world to the horrors of racism, in director Chinonye Chukwu's biographical drama, Till. Based on the true story of Mamie Till Mobley, the film recounts her relentless pursuit of justice for her 14-year-old son Emmett Till, who, in 1955 was lynched while visiting his cousins in Mississippi. In addition to Till, Chukwu's other directorial credits include the feature film Clemency and an episode of Sorry for Your Loss. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Chukwu spoke with director David Oyelowo about filming Till. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
2: Yes, yes. Let's get this started. I am so proud of you. I am so, 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 so proud of you. Um, okay, let's start Let's start at the beginning as we get to know each other. Um, who have been your influences? What, what were your influences growing up on your journey towards being a director?
0: So I had childhood influences and then um, that just got me excited about movies. And then I had... Cinematic influences that really helped shape me as an as a director. Mm. And so, growing up, I grew I grew up visiting family in Nigeria every year, mm. and I'm from Emo State. And I, w- I would go to my father's village, and we would watch Coming to America.
2: <laughs> wow, wow, classic!
0: <laughs> every single day, we would watch Coming to America, and I was obsessed with Julia Roberts movies. And I would rewrite the movies in my journals and just rewrite the scripts and storyboard the films. And I just would escape. It was escapism for me. And then after I went to film school and really started studying the craft of filmmaking, that's when I started being influenced by different auteurs like Bella Federico Fellini, Pavlovsky, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's when I started understanding the craft of cinema. But as a child, it was about escapism. It was Julia Roberts and coming to America.
2: Those are very, very (laughs) solid starts to a filmmaking (laughs) career, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you, You manage something in this film that is incredibly hard to do. The biopic is a notoriously difficult genre. It has a bunch of tropes in there that are really potholes, you know, should it be cradled to the grave? Whose POV should you follow? How did you go about, in my opinion, so successfully making what is indisputably a biopic, but it not feeling like a biopic, it not falling into some of those potholes? Um, What were the things you had in mind as you were crafting this?
0: Well, the first decision that I made that I think really prevented me from those potholes that you talked about was Making the story solely focused on Mamie's journey and her emotional point of view. And so if, if Mamie doesn't see it or she doesn't discover it, we're, I'm not including it in the narrative. And so we re- I really kept the narrative through line focused on her. And I decided on a very specific time frame mm. and not to try to include every single historical detail, but to keep it so focused on point of view and this particular time p- frame. And I'm very disciplined. Once I make up my mind, I do not stray. And so that was the biggest thing that really helped me avoid those potholes.
2: Talk to me about about that decision making, because one of the most terrifying things I think as a filmmaker is planting your flag sticking to it one of those moments for me watching your film illustrative of that is the moment in the court scene where you stay on Danielle's face for so long I mean longer than I have seen in any other biopic or film of this nature and it is so effective it is the moment you realize without a doubt, whose POV we are in for this movie. Talk to me about that moment in particular and and arriving at what, you know, is a scary, but in my opinion, effective and successful, uh, you know, planting your fire decision.
0: Okay, so I will say that I never approached this film as a biopic. Like that never entered my, everybody else maybe, but that never approached my brain at all. And so I was thinking, what is the most cinematic focused way to tell this story Mm. and what would really push the boundaries artistically while keeping it within Mamie's perspective? And so for that particular scene, it actually was not planned. Mm. My cinematographer and I had eight or nine other setups planned. And the way that I always approach the visual deciding what the visual language will be with the film and what my directorial choices will be. It has to be rooted in story. It has to be rooted in the emotional and psychological beats that are underneath and in between the words. And so I'm, I thought, that we needed these eight or nine setups to communicate the emotional tension that Mamie is navigating and the pressure of the gazes that are on her, particularly when she's cross-examined. And so the first setup was Mamie's close-up. And after the first take, I said, damn. (laughs) Because Danielle Deadweiler's performance was so incredible, she got a standing ovation from the crew. Whoa. And then after the second take, my cinematographer Bobby Bukowski and I looked at each other, and we said, "I don't think we need anything else because you don't want to take your eyes off of her, and all of those emotional and psychological beats that I wanted to communicate, I I, I thought could be communicated in a long take." So what it what what I decided as we were moving through different takes, I was adjusting the framing and composition so we can be clear about the world beyond the frame. Mm. So the hands, the ring, the pictures, and then the rack focus from the jury to Mamie would communicate the spatial relationship, right? And so I said, okay, if we just adjust certain camera movements and framing and composition, and, you know, Bobby and I talked about the dolly around her and when we want to push in. We And so it, it, we, can, we can get what we want. I didn't tell Danielle what we were doing. Mm. The only thing I talked to Danielle about is in when we were shooting that scene was what was going on internally with Mamie, And then she just stayed present in it and totally trusted me and Bobby with what, we do- with what we were doing. And so the sixth take is when we got all of the framing, the composition, the camera movement, right? And that's what's in the film.
2: Whoa! I mean, that, that's, that's, that's really, really incredible, the level of trust you had in your vision, in her performance, to know on the day that having however many takes, eight, eight different uh, setups that you were going to do, that you could leave that alone. Now, you simply cannot do that without people around you who really trust you. In terms of the vision you have for the film, two people who are very, very dear to me are truly groundbreaking producers: Alana Mayo, who um, runs Orion, the, one of the or this studio that is that is uh, 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 enabled this to happen, and Barbara Broccoli, legendary producer in her own right. Two women who are groundbreaking, indisputably, in their own way, and I imagine that folks like that. Have to be instrumental in being able to make a decision like that. I mean, talk to me about that, that, that support, that sort of ring fencing that you need as a filmmaker.
0: I mean, Barbara Broccoli and Alana Mayo were critical in protecting my creative autonomy. Mm. because they believed in my creative vision. And one of the big reasons I signed on to do this film was because they, along with Whoopi Goldberg, who's another producer on this film, made it very clear to me how much they believe in my artistry and they believe that I was meant to tell this story, especially Barbara would tell me that often. Mm. And I felt very empowered to really lean into my creative choices. Now, I will say... When I was starting to make the decision to make this a six-minute, 45-second long take, there was a part of me that thought the studio was going to snatch me up. <laughs> now, listen, this is my first studio film. So wow. I talked to a lot of directors to, right. before making this film to get advice and words of wisdom, and they all said it's going to be a horrible experience. <laughs> wow. 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 They wow. said, girl, brace yourself. Mm. It's going to be a fight, blah, 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 blah. And so I was ready and, and you know— I talked about it with Barbara on the day. One of the m- most incredible things about Barbara, who is one of the most legendary, iconic, and busiest producers, is that she was on set every day. And she was right there when we when I was thinking of making the decision that this was going to be th- the long take, and she was so supportive and encouraging of it. She's like, just let the studio know. Just <laughs> So I called the studio in the middle of shooting and let them know what was going on. And they said to me, we believe in your vision. And if this is what you think would be best for the film, go ahead. I mean, it's unheard of. It's unheard of. And I just, I just knew this is what we needed to do. And so it just, I had the support from the studio and the producers and, and the crew and, and the, it just, it was incredible. And the actors, the other actors, you know, we had eight or nine other setups and, you know, people, other people, other actors had their close ups and medium, but they came to me and they said, Nagar, girl, you don't need anything else. <laughs> so even the actors were like, no, you don't need to get me. It was incredible.
2: It is worth acknowledging that, you know, I look, I hate this phrase inclusion and diversity and all of that stuff, but we know what it means and we know why it's become part of the lexicon. But this is what it looks like in action yes. um I, I honestly don't know that you have that level of autonomy without a black woman as the head of the studio yep. i honestly don't know that you have that autonomy without whoopi goldberg and barbara Broccoli there who identify with your struggle as a woman the the ne- necessitous nature of your voice as a woman in relation to that film because i've i've participated in films of this nature and that is not the norm by any means. Yes. You, it is a fight. And it's not only a fight to get the film made in the first place, it's a fight to have your perspective be valued enough that yes. it translates to the screen. Um so, you know, that Is what this thing we're fighting for looks like in action. And so I am elated to, to see and, and hear that. Let's talk about you as a, as a, as a black female filmmaker, which of course isn't what defines you, but it's a, it's a reality of who you are. You have made more than one feature film. Mm -hmm. That makes you a rare bird already. Um, in, in terms of filmmakers in your demographic. This is a phenomenal film, in my opinion. The world should be your oyster going forward. But we know that the world isn't fair Mm -hmm. and what should happen is not always what does happen. Now, clearly, you're very intentional with the choices you make as a filmmaker. I have to believe that applies to what you hope your journey going forward as a filmmaker will be. How are you hoping to navigate the fact that you're already rare considering you are still going to be new to uh, people who are who are coming to know your work?
0: I think that for me, the most important thing is to be grounded within myself, mm. to be grounded within my joy, to be grounded within my peace, to detach from the ego of filmmaking and the business of filmmaking, mm. to be clear, to be silent with, you know, and to kind of step away from the, the noise, good, bad, and everything in between, And to be clear within myself about what it is that I want, Mm. you know, I didn't, so when I made my last film, Clemency, I was, so I've been wanting to be a filmmaker since I was 13 and I decided that, you know, child of Nigerian immigrants, they're like, they're not having that. Right. (laughs) So. (laughs) I know it well they're like filmmaking for what um and so I it wasn't until I was twenty twenty one that I decided to pursue filmmaking wow. I, I changed my major but time my parents back they still don't know what I, my, my degree is in um <laughs> <laughs> and um and I've been really pushing you know I'm 37 now so it's been almost 20 years that I've really been pushing and pushing and making films and just staying in the craft staying in the work No knowledge of the business of filmmaking. I just was like, I need to grow and expand as an artist, as a filmmaker, and as a storyteller. And so when I made my last film, Clemency... Um, The only reason I moved to L.A., you know, I was, so I was a film professor for 10 years and I created a film program in women's prisons in Ohio. I had a very, very full life that was not, had nothing to do with the business of filmmaking. And so I moved to L.A. when I was 33 only because that was where we had to shoot my last film. And I didn't know the difference between, and I didn't know what an agent was. I didn't know the difference between a CAA or a freaking WGA or whatever, you know. And, it, and I I value that because I had the opportunity to develop myself as a human being separate from this industry and to have a life that has nothing to do with the business of film. And even though I'm so incredibly passionate about the work that I do, my joy is not tied to this. And so that I take... That is a source of power for me, and it helps me be able to say no. <laughs> helps me be helps me to get clarity about what I want for me and not for anybody else. And so I really lean on that, and I'm I, I that will be my guide moving forward, no matter what happens, what comes of this till journey.
2: Well, you are going to be just fine <laughs> <laughs> um, with with that attitude, because the reality is that you are. Being thrust into this thing called award season, and it is a it is a doozy. And so, you know that that what you're talking about there is how to survive it. In my opinion, uh, let's talk about Danielle yes. and and this uh, incredible central performance. Um, I mean, I there were so many moments as an actor watching the film that I uh, found myself. You know when you're watching a great performance, I think as an actor, when you are gawping at it, you are in a state of stasis, and it's not till moments have gone by you go, I don't know how she how she did that. The uh, the thing that she has elicited in me to feel, you, you're watching a good performance when you can see the work, and you're kind of going, oh, okay, that's a good choice. Oh, I see what they're doing there. But you know, she somehow for me anyway transcended that and was so in it. Yeah you could tell that there was a complete surrender to this to this offering, this place of service that she was in to deliver this performance. Talk to me about casting her, finding her, getting this performance out of her.
0: I mean, Danielle's a revelation. <laughs> um, we were looking for our Mamie for months, and then she sent an audition tape, <laughs> and she blew me away. And I remember texting Barbara like, Check out this tape, oh And Barbara's like, oh MG. When I cast actors, particularly actors in leading roles, I tend to look at this. Can they communicate a story with their eyes? Can they really can they commun- can they really communicate what's going on underneath and in between the words without saying a word? Can they hold and command a screen? And Danielle checked all those boxes with her audition tape, with her callbacks, with her director session, with her chem read, with, with, with uh, Jalen who plays Emmett Till. And, She was so, she looked at this performance as service, Mm. as an offering, and she would say that often. And so um, she dove into the research, and we spent several months before shooting going through every single emotional and psychological beat and nuance of the script multiple times. And we would talk every single day for months about the research and discoveries. And, um, you know, she'd rehearse with different actors, and the rehearsals were largely about getting into the emotional psychology ology of the characters and 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 what's going on in the silences and so for her for her for the director session for the callback before she was officially cast. she did we went through the scene where she's looking at Emmett's body and there's no dialogue but we but we talked about it in terms of where Mamie begins emotionally at the beginning and where what is her arc by the end of that scene and what leads what are the emotional beats that lead her to that place and so um that's the that's how we talked about every scene and on the days when we were shooting that's how we talked about it you know um and that's how I talked with all the other actors and she was just able to take it to a I mean a transcendent place
2: well I I certainly agree with you there um you you mentioned the scene with the body and and one of the things that really struck me watching the film was not only what we got to see but the things that we didn't get to see, which I, I thought was incredibly disciplined and judicious and um, thoughtful on, on your part. The moment we got to see the body, because I wondered, are we going to get to see the body? And somehow it was as impactful as you would hope. And I wondered whether we would see it or not. And then there were times where we didn't see it. We were seeing people react to it. And that was impactful in its own way. But one of the things that really struck me is we seldom or barely got to see the faces of the violators mm-hmm. of Emmett Till, which was a very clearly deliberate choice, but effective. Um, I have my own theories as to why you did that, but you know, I have you here, so I'm going to ask.
0: <laughs> I'm curious about what your
2: theory. <laughs> no, are. no, no. You go first. <laughs>
0: um, there is one close-up of a white person in this film, mm. <laughs> and that is of Carolyn Bryant. Right. Um. And it was a very deliberate choice because I wanted to center the Black people who are in this story, mm. and make this film through their their point of view, their gaze, their emotional point of view, um, primarily Mamie's point of view. And you know, I think about this the, when thinking when constructing the scene where Moses testifies, for instance. That is a scene about him stepping into his power. Mm. It is not a scene about J.W. and Roy's reaction. I don't give a damn about their reaction. Mm-hmm. It is about Moses and his strength and his power and his resilience. And so I really wanted to center the, the strength, the power, and the beauty of black people above all. And there's a, there, I think that it is a political act at times where you choose to face the camera. And so I was really intentional about that. And that was an extension of my act of resistance in making this film.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thankfully, that was my theory. So. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of that, uh, there is something very unique and specific. Almost no, in my opinion, white filmmaker will have to deal with this, which is the very specific fact of racial trauma Mm -hmm. expectation Mm -hmm. history Mm -hmm. that you step into when you tell a story like this you simply will not please everyone Mm -hmm. but so much of the truth of that is tied to trauma Mm -hmm. how do you go into telling a story like this knowing that that is something you are going to have to face almost politically it's not like just making a film and go, this is my art I'm gonna you are about to face many people who knew know and of course as they should what happened with Emmett Till why are we telling this story black this black that black pain what you know I understand where that that is coming from but you as the filmmaker how have you positioned it in your head how did it influence the filmmaking how did it influence your choice to tell this story
0: i compartmentalize quite well when it comes to that so i i that didn't and though those kinds of concerns didn't enter my mind at all when i was making the film Mm. because i knew what i was intending to do and that was first and foremost making this about Mamie, mm. making this about the love between her and her son. And I knew that I didn't, I wasn't going to show physical violence inflicted upon black bodies. That was a decision I knew going in, I mean, from the first time I met the producers mm. about signing on to this project. That I, that was kind of like my line. Mm. Um And I knew that the way that I was going to center the point of view and the perspective was going to be from a place of care Mm. and intentionality and love. And and that's all I can do. And then I release it onto the world, you know? And really, I'm thankful that I'm partnered with a studio and UAR, United Artists Releasing, who's really intentional about getting the word out in positioning this film, so people understand that that is that's the intention behind the film, and that's how the film has been made, with from a place of critical care um, and and self empowerment, and not trauma. But I also I, I also think it's a great opportunity for us to complicate the conversations more. Mm. You know, mm. because you know, I, as a black woman in the world, as a black person in the world. We, like, I think about my life and how intentional I am about my joy and my love and my community alongside the inherent trauma and pain and anger around being a Black woman in this world. All of that can exist and does exist alongside each other, Mm -hmm. right? And so... Just because there are moments of pain or trauma doesn't negate all the other stuff, Mm. you know, like that's that's like that's that's the reality of being a black person in this world, Mm. you know. And so I hope that we can get to a place where we can complicate that conversation. But it's like I I understand the the hesitation because I also I didn't want to recreate the physical violence inflicted upon. I didn't want to recreate it. I didn't want to watch it. And also, from an artistic perspective, narratively, it wasn't necessary. Um, but I, it, we have to complicate the conversations. And, and, um, and yeah.
2: Completely agreed. Um, there's always that moment after you've finished principal photography where you see the rough assembly. <laughs> <laughs> like, what and I
0: just do? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. There's a, that, that four-hour cut where you just think, I don't know what to cut, but I also don't think the film works. Um, Talk to me about going into post with a film like this. Yes, you've gone in with all of that intention, all of that mindset that you were able to um, execute on on the set, but then the film starts to talk to you in the post-production process. You know, were there any surprises? Were there any dark nights of the soul? I mean, what were... What were the moments you can remember before it got to what we've just seen?
0: So I'm not precious about anything in post at all. I'm usually the one who has to tell my editor to cut more because I actually get, I'm incredibly clear Mm. in post about, what we're gonna cut and what's not working. Like mm. as we're shooting some things and you know, as we're shooting certain scenes, I knew certain scenes were not gonna make it in post. I wow. just knew. Um and it just either wasn't narratively necessary or it it didn't quite work or whatnot. And so and I also know that the assembly is watching your assembly is probably the worst day of your life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean it is a it is a dark, dark day. Um <laughs> and and so I I emotionally prepared for it and um it's process it's part of the process Mm -hmm. and so I'm also a very so so the first day of assembly happens and I come with you I usually come with a clarity about what we need to cut I was like listen Ron who's my phenomenal editor I already told I was like listen Ron I know this is not gonna work 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 but we watch it all and um it, the assembly was actually a lot better than i thought it was going to be i didn't have like i didn't like regret my decision to be a filmmaker like i often <laughs> do when i watch an assembly yeah. um and then we get to work and then we just it, i i watch it all so because i it's important for me my process the way my brain works i need to see where the arc, the arc i need to get a clear i need to know where we're going and then we take it piece by piece and figure out how we're going to get there and that's, and that's what we did. And, uh, I'm not, like I said, I'm not precious about anything. There was, there was actually quite a bit that we cut, hmm. um, because it just wasn't narratively necessary or it wasn't, um, it just didn't quite work. And, uh, and I had no problem getting rid of it. Like I literally have no problem getting rid of anything Wow. at all. I mean, at all. <laughs> um, wow because what's important is 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 the film and and yeah, the yeah, yeah. and and the only thing that y'all are going to see is what's kept in mm. and so uh, but I am precious about that window of time that my editor and I have where the producers and the studio can't bother us mm. and it's we it's just me and my editor and <laughs> you know Lovely barbers in the audience. And so it was Fred Zola, our producers. And I'm sure that was kind of <laughs> uh, killing them. But I, they were forbidden from watching anything. <laughs> like, I really just want that time between me and my editor and no voices in my head. And we just got to figure it out and, and, and fine tune what story it is that we want to tell. And thankfully, the story I wanted to tell happens to be the story that ended up on screen. We just had to fine tune and cut some of the fat.
2: That's beautiful. I love it. I love it. Um, okay, we don't have much time left. Uh, if there are any questions anyone has, I have more questions. I could be here all night. Um, oh, very good. Um, have you got a, a mic for this person? Grab a mic. Um, and while that's happening, very quickly, Whoopi Goldberg in this yes. film, that that moment where she on the bed... Yeah. Oh, my Lord. I mean, uh, we know she's a great actress, but there's a bunch of other stuff she's been doing since we've seen her doing a lot of acting. It really reminded me of how great of an actress she is. And it was just such a simple moment. Barely any words, you know, Danielle comes and sits next to her on the bed. So powerful, so impactful. Just quickly, while uh, before uh, this next question, Whoopi Goldberg, talk to me. I
0: mean, she's one of, I mean, she's a legend for a reason and an icon, but she's so humble and she was so receptive And desiring of direction, and just and and just humble to the process, and so we actually we we did we did several takes of that scene very different ways, Mm. and she just wanted to try a lot of things, and it was great um, to to just explore, and it was a much longer take. I mean, we cut a lot, Mm. Um, and she was just so warm and open and it was just fun to play with her. And it, I mean, there was part of me, I was like, oh my God, I'm directing Whippy Goldberg. Um, but she she was she she really just was like, I'm just an actor and just direct me. And so we went we 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 played yeah. and we explored.
2: Beautiful. She's wonderful in it. Okay. Um this gentleman has a question.
0: Yeah, um, I believe that day we had a member of the Till family on set. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we had a member of the Till family on set, and so that was so that was a that that was very powerful, and there was spiritual energy there, and the performance of Aunt the, of Keisha who plays Auntie Lizzie. I mean, that kind of took us out. And that was—I mean, she was great, but we weren't expecting that. I mean, that came from like a deep, soulful place. That, in com- combination with the choir and their singing—I mean, it was—it was nothing changed in terms of how I planned on how to we—I wanted to direct it and shoot it. But the 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 channeling and the spiritual energy and and just the it just was so palpable and I, you know, Keisha who plays Auntie Lizzie after the, she, she gave her body to that performance and you could hear a pin drop. And I knew that I needed to restrict the takes to two. And I told the crew, no matter what happens, this is all we're getting, two takes because there, I mean, after the first take, she could barely walk, and Danielle was really concerned for her. And 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 she's like, no, you know, we can't, we can't do this more than once, um, and or more than twice. And so um, the you, the men you you met the men you see holding her up is, it, they, were, they were background, but they actually needed to hold her up. And you just ev- it was just so clear that everyone was channeling something and was really in tune with the larger purpose that
2: day. Anyone else? Uh, The gentleman in the cap.
0: That's a very good question. Um, So in terms of on-set well-being, we had a therapist on set every day. Wow. And so she was incredible um, and available to cast and crew to process um, in real time, to process before shooting, to process after shooting. Also, the parents of all the children were there. And so I remember there was a, when we were shooting the scene where Emmett is abducted, Jalen, who plays Emmett, um, after a take or two, he asked me if he can get a hug from his mom. Oh. And so, of course, I stopped everything we were doing and he got a hug from his mom. And we didn't continue until he was ready. And, you know, even if he wasn't ready to shoot more, we would have stopped, period. You know, um, and so whatever people needed in the moment... I was very mindful of and protective of, and that was the priority above all. Um, also constant conversation. I'm quite protective of the actors and the crew that I work with. And so I was constantly asking people about, you know, what do you need? What, you, How are you doing? Danielle and I would to this day have constant conversations about well-being. And now it's like well-being to get us out of the place that we had to go to to make this film and Barbara, who's, in, who's here with us, and I know she's going to kill me for acknowledging her, but she's in the back. Uh, Barbara is very motherly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I joke about this, but she has a bag. <laughs> it's a large bag that she carries with her everywhere. And she literally can get anything from Excedrin to a granola bar. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to ask her. She and she, or not? Because she will, uh, she will bring out the sunscreen. She will bring. I mean, the sunscreen. It's just. <laughs> Just, she. It was just. It was just like taking care of you and whatever you needed, and 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 she was so fiercely protective of everybody, and so that in addition, so in addition to you know the other producers, myself, um, we were all very very protective of everybody, and we all supported each other. You know when we were shooting the scene where Mamie is receiving Emmett's body at the train station, Danielle physically could not walk in between takes because it it was a full body offering. And Sean Patrick Thomas, who plays Jean, physically helped her into the wheelchair and was taking care of her in between takes. And it was just so beautiful to see that kind of care amongst the, amongst actors. Um, And so that's, that's the kind of care that we, that we did on set. And then I have to admit I could have done a much better job with my own personal self-care, but it was a lesson that I learned in making till about the things I need to do moving forward to protect my well-being because honestly I did not do a good job, but I'm I'm, I'm making up for that now.
2: <laughs> amazing, amazing. Like I said, we could be here all evening. Sorry anyone who didn't get to ask a question I am just so proud of you I, I can't even begin to tell you I can uh, attest to Barbara Broccoli's uh, motherly nature have you tasted her tiramisu
0: no she made tiramisu Barbara where's my tiramisu
2: okay we're gonna have to figure something out it's gonna happen at my house Barbara yes! again um, I heard she's a great cook she's a very very great cook um, so proud of you so proud of thank this you. film congratulations it's an extraordinary piece of work thank
1: you thank you so much give it much.
2: up for Chennai thank a. you all and tell. Thank you everyone. Good night. Thank you
1: so much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate and review. We'd love to hear your feedback and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.